Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Hi, this is Emily Carney again. And along with Eleanor O. Rangers and Tom Hill, I'd like to welcome you to Space 3D, the podcast that discusses a wealth of space topics. On this episode, we continue our tribute to astronaut Al Warden, whose career is largely defined by his role as command module pilot on Apollo 15. This episode features part two of our interview with Francis French, renowned spaceflight historian and co-author of Al Warden's best-selling 2011 autobiography, Falling to Earth. Without further comment, here's the interview. So I'm an Air Force uh, retiree, as uh, so same service as Al. He had a unique way of getting there, though, that's for sure. He also had a pretty interesting career before he became an astronaut. Did you talk much with him about his time at the Test Pilot School of England? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, that's all in Falling to Earth, the book as well. Um, there, were, there were places that most astronaut books don't go. Um, they tend to concentrate on the Cape where the launches are. They tend to concentrate on Houston, where everybody lived and trained. They don't tend to get out to places like Downey, California, where the spacecraft were built. And yet that's a huge part of these guys' lives. Plus, as you mentioned, the test pilot and the Air Force career before, that's often what these folks really were passionate and excited about. When you're an astronaut, you fly maybe once every few years, and that's still the case. Um, And when you're a test pilot, you're flying almost every day and you're flying different airplanes all the time. Um, He loved England. Um, He continued to come over to England for the rest of his life. He welcomed opportunities to be to do business in England because he really liked the people. Um, He really enjoyed being over there. And particularly for the test pilot school when he was in in England, he loved the way how different it was. He got to fly. He he rattled off a list, which uh, most of which is in the book of about 20 airplanes. He got to fly from tiny little weird ones to the biggest, fastest, most impressive cutting edge jets you can imagine he and it was a case of just yeah go sign that one out sure give that one a a go which for a a pilot is wonderful you get to try all these different experiences plus it was very different from what was happening in america and america at the time things were being plotted on sort of primitive computer-like devices of where all the all the different measurements you needed to make very much talking to the equivalent of mission control talking to the tower um, in England, it was essentially you had a knee board, you had a force gauge, you were manually um, testing the different forces on the airplane, plotting them and writing them down as you flew. And then you came back and reported. So it was a much more individual um, pilot oriented way of doing it, which he really much enjoyed. Just as when he was around the far side of the moon and mission control were not bugging him to do things, he could get on with his own job. A lot of these single seater jet pilot guys were very much in that mentality. And that's something else I've been thinking about this last week um, with everybody in isolation and people not sure what to do and people socially feeling lonely and awkward. And Al had a, you know, a great mindset of that in the same way that Mike Collins did, which is when they were being interviewed about being the most remote, isolated people in human existence, which they were, they were further away from anybody else. They were around the far side of the moon with a huge, with thousands of tons of rock in between them and a radio signal, nobody could talk to them. And they were delighted. They were happy. They were in their own world doing what they wanted to do. They were in charge of what they were doing. Nobody could bug them. They actually welcomed that extreme isolation because that was their background as single-seater 
pilots. That was their mindset. And it's kind of a good lesson for us all to be thinking about now, which is for those of us who are fortunate enough not to be worrying about losing jobs or um, being in, in difficult situations, those of us who are more comfortably at home, you know, be like Al, do, do, it, do it that way. Think about the opportunity rather than the, the downside. Okay. I actually have two questions for you. Um, one is just about the process of writing the book with Al. How long did it take to write the book? Obviously, he had a level of trust with you in helping to tell his story. Did he review drafts along the way or did he say, write the whole thing, I'll, re- I'll read it at the end? I'm just curious about that process. Oh, sure. I, I should, you know, I should very much clarify. This is his book. I'm basically the conduit he used to get his words out there. But um, it was very much a collaborative process. But he was the driver. And this is his story. Um, I'm merely assisting get those words on the page in a, in a reasonable order. Um, very much his project, very much his his life and his words. The, the actual way we did it was at least once every six months, we would be in the same place, um, just because of the nature of space events we were both working at. So particularly down at the Cape, and he was at that time living about an hour's drive away in Florida. So I would go for a number of days before or afterwards, and his wife, Jill, would essentially feed us and keep us in a room for a week. And we would just do nothing from waking up till going to sleep, then uh, work and occasionally have some Grey Goose vodka, which, you know, didn't necessarily... Slow the stories, that's for sure. So um, we, we do a lot of oral history stuff, a lot of, um, sorry, a lot of oral recording, a lot of getting the stories down. When I was then away, I would be doing all the research. I would be double checking what he's saying, transcribing all that, sending him drafts when we got to that point for which he would make you know, a number of changes. Um, a lot of the time it was fascinating what other stuff I could find in other documents that I could ask him about. And just like anything in any of our lives, if, if you haven't thought about some obscure thing that happened to you three decades ago, when somebody brings out a piece of paper showing that's what happened, you kind of go, oh my goodness, I hadn't thought about that for so many decades. And that would set off another whole bunch of stories and things for me to, to look into, um, which made it a wonderful process to be able to look at somebody as they're looking at you and see behind their eyes some sudden flicker of recognition of something that happened to them around the moon decades ago. It's just, it, it's a, it was an honor to be in the room. It was almost like, you know, hairs going up on the back of my spine there. Um, so it was, it was wonderful. And, uh, but, but very much his book, very much what he wanted to be in there. A lot of stories, of course, um, that didn't make it into the book, some which would have slowed it down. Some of which were the kind of thing I would never share, but I'm very honored that he would share with me just to give me, a wider backdrop on the things that he was willing to say. Hmm. Um, Well, that kind of brings up the next question I have. And obviously there is one particular incident that I know was recounted in the book. And I'm curious if there was any blowback when the book came out um, about that particular incident that occurred on Apollo 15. I'd have to know what particular incident we're talking about. Are we talking about the postal covers or? The postal covers, yeah, okay. the stamp incident. There are a lot of people out there that know a lot of stuff from the time and also some very dogged researchers, some people who did not want to be credited in the book, but nevertheless are world experts on this stuff. And believe me, we ran everything we could by everybody we could. Um, there's also a wealth of NASA investigation paperwork and a wealth of congressional testimony. Um, 
I wasn't there. I can only write what I have from that. But I would have to say I would be very surprised if anybody had felt after the meticulous, thoroughly researched, thoroughly documented and official documentation that we did, that anybody would feel like they could have any kind of blowback to that because it's pretty much an airtight, open and shut case at that point. Um, I have not had any, I, I don't think I'll had anything but praise. What really, really moved him and also moved me um, were the number of Apollo astronauts, other Apollo astronauts who privately and publicly said incredibly glowing things about Al after that and were that some of them had been pushing Al to write that book for years because of that. Some of them had been very quietly supportive behind the scenes. And they were all very, very, very um, supportive of him. And that, that, I think, meant a lot to Al, particularly because of his wilderness years where a lot of people were, you know, you're my friend, but it's really not good for my job to talk to you right now. They'd kind of had to push him away. And for that, to, for Al to get that back at the end of his life or all of a sudden he was part of a band of brothers again, that meant a huge amount to him. And I'm so glad we did the book for that reason. I can't think of a single negative we had, to be honest. Oh, that's great. That's great to know. Tom, I think you may have had uh, some other questions. Uh, so the, um, the, the big spacewalk he did on the way back, truly, you know, that was actually probably one of the last big firsts, you know, of just that being that far away and being outside your spacecraft. What, uh, what did he say about that? I think Al was a little frustrated by his spacewalk because he did it so well. He didn't take any time for himself. Um, he, had spent a huge amount of time working with the people who were working out exactly how to do this precisely coordinated ballet in space, halfway between the Earth and the Moon, and uh, was so dedicated to pulling it off. And as you mentioned, it was it was a first. That, you know, it's hard to imagine in these days of digital downloads having to physically climb out of a spacecraft, go down to the back of a spacecraft, pull out huge film cassettes and bring them back inside because that's the only way you're going to see these amazing images taken around the moon. But that's what he had to do. It went so well and he did it in such a short, efficient amount of time that once he came back in, he went, oh my goodness, why did I not just take a moment for myself and just look at this view? In the, the moments he did have while he was operationally doing what he needed, um, the things he observed were fascinating and incredible. He was in this deep blackness of space that nobody had ever experienced before because anybody else outside of the spacecraft had either been around the earth or on the moon to, to be able to look out into the vastness like that and to see the earth and moon looking about the same size, because while the moon is smaller, the distance between earth and moon that they happened to be at that moment, they looked about the same size. And he, he had an experience that nobody else had ever been able to have before. Um, you'd have had to, People might have been able to have it inside Apollo spacecraft before had the windows been exactly lined up and they'd looked at exactly the right moment to be able to turn your head one way and see a, a full Earth, turn your head the other way to see a full moon. It does not sound like any that ever happened, that coincidence ever happened before. But Al's outside and he can do that. And so sure enough, he, he can look in one direction and look at the other and see an entire Earth, an entire moon, something that no human had ever been able to do before. And uh, it... I don't think it really hit him what happened to him until he came back. And then he's sitting in his apartment alone at night. He can't sleep. 
because his entire family and friends have come over and they're partying all night and they leave about 3 a.m. and he's amped up. He can't get to sleep. And so he just starts writing down notes. Um, that's what ends up becoming some of his poems. And he's reflecting on this experience of it felt to him like swimming in a dark ocean, like he's deep underwater in the blackness swimming in the middle of an ocean. And uh, I think those, those sort of evocative moments come later. One of the reasons I really enjoyed writing a book with him later in life, because he's had time to reflect on this stuff and some of the more philosophical things about what it's like to do something like that. We, we, we talked about the technical, we talked about how the spacewalk actually happened, but those emotional reactions to it, they, they come after the mission. And I'm, I'm so glad we wrote those down as well. And then um, it also, since he got, since he joined the program late, he, the Apollo spacecraft were probably pretty far along in development. Did he get involved at all in the, uh, in the development of the, the craft, especially like maybe after the fire or something like that? Right. Um, people forget that even though these missions were happening um, as the Apollo program were winding down, and in his case, you know, he flew in the summer of 71 and the program was over by late 72, unless you count Apollo Soyuz. Um, he was there in 1966 and at the time where Apollo was ramping up to the Apollo 11 triumph. He was very much involved in spacecraft design. Um, most of his stuff was happening out here in Downey, California, and um, which is a story that most people forget. There's so much happened here in California, designing, building those spacecraft. He was on the factory floor. He was inside the spacecraft testing um, all the time. And he and Jack Swigert worked with Mission Control to create a procedures book that was essentially what could possibly go wrong how this is the procedure to fix it. So they did a lot of work on that. And it meant that when Apollo 13 happened and Jack Swigert was in the spacecraft when the, um, they had that explosion, Jack Swigert was the perfect person. Basically, he and Al were the two who knew the best thing to do with that command module to allow it to be um, still workable by the time they came back to Earth and survived. So did a huge amount to probably save the Apollo 13 crew in that way. And... When it comes to Apollo 1, yes, the, the fire was obviously a, a devastating thing for everybody. Um, he got to know Gus Grissom somewhat in some of the car racing stuff he was doing. And um, so personally, it was, was, was a blow. But also his, his job immediately became even more focused in Downey of let's get this spacecraft working again. I still find it amazing that that, that that happened. And the next year, they're flying again. The next year, they're on the moon. I mean, how many things could be turned around that quickly these days. I can't imagine if a huge engineering accident like that happened now, they'd still be writing the report a year and a half later. They wouldn't be on their way yeah. to the moon. It's amazing how quickly they were able to recover the spacecraft, recover what they needed to do, fix the problem, and get on with it to create humankind's probably greatest engineering achievement to date. It, 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 people like Al and everybody else who's working in that huge team, I'm, I'm still amazed that they were able to do that. Yeah, I always thought that that was a sign of the importance that had been signed, assigned to it and the urgency, that if you have both of those, you know, you do move forward while the, while the report's being done. Great people. It, it comes down to great people. And, you know, people lament, why aren't we doing this anymore? And they start saying if, if it's like it's something to do with the, the people. NASA still has incredible people. They just don't have that particular opportunity and huge amount of funding and time level to do it right now. But you get the right people in the right place, and they're, they're right now ready to go. People can do incredible stuff. 
You mentioned, obviously, you probably have hours and hours of these recordings with Al, and some things that you said would not be brought into the book and so forth. So was there any discussion about allowing those records to be released at some point, even for research purposes? I'm curious about, you know, about all of that raw material. Well, the great thing is, is that, you know, Al and I were working on two other books at the time he passed away, um, a children's book and then also another adult book. Um, we, we realized there was so much else that we wanted to say, including a whole bunch of new stories. And we, we continued interviewing. That's, that was something that was fortunately all the work on those were done when he passed away. Now, what happens now is still in flux, but my, I'm, I'm confident we're going to be able to get those stories out and share them with everybody because I was a, a wealth of, of stories. After the first book came out and the publisher was interested in the second one, both of us had, you know, had a conversation like, do you think there's enough to do another book? And we, we decided to have another go. We sat down and turned the tape recorder on and away we went. And within 10 minutes, I'm thinking there's plenty. Like, the guy never ran out of fascinating stories. So um, fortunately, there will be more on the way. That's oh, good to know. Emily, um, any any uh, additional questions? I really don't have any additional questions. Uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share, Francis? Yeah, I think um, as, you know, it's been a tough um, month for, you know, people like you, Emily, who, who Al loved and respected and really enjoyed hanging out with um, and got to know on, on more than a, a superficial personal level. It's, it's a very tough time for everybody. And um, we're all moving into this kind of legacy mode. And I think the thing to remember about Al is that, you know, there were 12 people who walked on the moon and they tend to get all the attention and quite understandably, nobody had ever walked on the moon before and they haven't since, but there were 24 people who went to the moon. And when you asked Al, what job did you want? It wasn't walking on the moon. It was the job he got to do, which was to fly for six days around the moon in orbit, three days totally on his own, looking out on the far side of the moon into the abyss of space and thinking, as nobody had ever actually been able to personally experience before what it's like to be in the universe as a representative of humankind, looking out there thinking, are we it? Um, are, there other, are there other life forms out there? What does it mean for humanity to be in this place at this moment? The kind of things I'm so glad we got written in that book and uh, that Al was able to share those questions. He did not necessarily come up with answers to all of those amazing questions. That's probably going to be for future generations. But the fact that we got down this amazing impression of what the first person to experience that um, thought of it, I think is going to be an incredible legacy and gets forgotten sometimes with the moonwalking um, focus that Al had an experience that no other humans have ever had. Um, I encourage you to go look at it and uh, to remember this incredible guy. All right. Fabulous. Um, thanks for tuning in to our interview with Francis French. We thank him for his involvement with our tribute. Stay tuned for more memories of Al Warden in upcoming episodes, including interviews with spaceflight historian Dr. James Hansen, who authored First Man, and space artist Michelle Rauch. Once again, we'd like to thank you for tuning into Space 3D.